Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 20, Genesis 20. So we continue our study through the book of Genesis before we get to our time when we sit down and answer your questions. But Genesis chapter 20 is perhaps one of the most difficult chapters in the entire Bible to understand why it's in the Bible. And I'll tell you why in just a minute. But there are times when you look at passages of Scripture, maybe a maybe a couple of verses, and you go, well, that's kind of interesting, but I'm not sure why that's there. A lot of people actually struggle with the whole of Genesis chapter 20. And it's because we don't see it from the perspective we ought to see it. Because the way you ought to see this passage of Scripture is through the lens of who you are as a believer. Someone who undoubtedly... Anybody in here been walking with the Lord for a while, still occasionally have a problem with some sin in your life? It's okay, raise your hand. Otherwise, I have to think bad things about you. So, (laughs) Yeah, we we do, amen? There are things, and and here's why, and I'll share before we get to Genesis chapter 20. If you would put your finger in Genesis 20 and flip over to Romans chapter 7, and we'll do a quick review. We'll pick up in verse 13, and it's speaking there, as the law is holy and the commandment holy, it's just and good, but sin taking the occasion has kind of killed off the commandment. And here's what the Apostle Paul says, has then that what is good become death to me? Certainly not, but sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. In other words, God allows things into our lives that keep us humble before the throne of grace. God allows things in our lives that keep us absolutely, utterly dependent upon Him God allows things in our lives that remind us that we have not yet arrived in heaven. Amen? And here's how we know that. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. This is, remember, the Apostle Paul writing this to Roman Christians. The Apostle Paul is admitting, he's saying to you and me, that there was a little bit of him that was carnal that he struggled, that he didn't quite have it all together. He speaks of his former life saying, sold under sin. But now notice how he addresses this, verse 15, and I want you to look at all the personal pronouns here. The we's, and the I's, and the me's. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal and sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Anybody in here do? Yeah. You ever, you, I mean, you, you are like geared up. For me, it's, I, I'm getting on the freeway. I, I actually have to look because I'd like to actually close my eyes and just pray. But I can't do that while I'm driving. It's just, it's one of those things. I get, and I start, little angst starts to build up, build up, and 
You start looking at the people, I know he's going to cut me off, and that one's going to, oh man, I know that, I can tell that. You, you know what I'm saying? You, you can tell something bad's about to happen. Maybe you don't struggle with this, but I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, look, the law is good. It points out the faults. It points out the weaknesses. Gives us a very clear indication of, of what's really the problem. But now it's no longer I who do it, but that remaining little bit, that tiny bit of that carnal, unredeemed you, the sin that is in you, that dwells in me, he says, it's that. For I know that in me that is my flesh, Jeff's flesh and everyone's flesh who's in here, I know that in me, my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present within me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So I find in a law that the evil that is present within me, the one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into the captivity of the law of sin, which is in my members. And then he says this, O wretched man that I, the great apostle Paul, am, who will deliver me, the great apostle Paul, who will deliver me, (laughs) I love this, from this body of death. And then the answer, I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord, so then, With my mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. In other words, the Apostle Paul admits willingly, freely, and openly to you and I, to us, the Bible actually says that believers sometimes are going to have besetting sins, just as the writer of Hebrews says. Things that every once in a while, you, you want to do better than you really do. You have a desire to to live godly after Christ Jesus. But there are times in your life where that sin may get the better of you. Not that it makes the sin right. Not that it makes the sin necessary. Not that that sin should be there. And not that it should continue. But until we get home, until we take our last breath here and open our eyes in heaven chances are all of us are going to be deeply in need every moment of the redeeming grace of God so that we can resist the devil. Amen? So think of Genesis chapter 20 in that light. Father, thank you for your word, and we pray now that you would move in this place by your spirit. Instruct us from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I call this one, Not Again, Abraham. (laughs) And now you know why. (laughs) Not again. Are you, you could say, are you kidding me? (laughs) You could think of probably a lot of other things with your carnal mind that's not redeemed.
Not again. The same exact sin. Verse 1, And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed at Gerar. And now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She's my sister. (laughs) We heard this before, right? This is not the first time. Last time they were in Egypt. And so they're back to the same old plot, the same old ploy, the same old lie. And just as it was then, it is actually still half-truth. For in fact, she is his sister. But more importantly, she's his wife. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now again, before you delve too deeply into what's going on here, remember this is a pagan society. And pagan societies did all kinds of things that God neither approved of nor encouraged any one of his kids to do. And amongst those is the accumulation of wives or to have harems. And so any of you guys that are in here that think this is a good idea, put your mind back where it belongs on Jesus. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. And you talk about God straightening out somebody's mess. This is one of those great stories where you can see man's weakness and God's grace all in the same passage. You you can see a man who's fatally flawed at times that's still mightily used of the Lord. You can see someone who struggles with a bunch of areas in his life and at the same time God still manages to do good through that messed up life. And so on one hand, it it gives us a a cause to just lean in on the Lord. And on the other hand, it it causes us to know that without His amazing grace in our lives, all that leaning is not going to get us where we need to go. It's not on us. It's really on God. God's working with us, and we do have some faults, and we do have some weaknesses, and they're very clear in the life of Abraham. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay the righteous nation also? And I want you to know, he has real good reason to think this. Because in his mind is what he already knew God did to Saddam, an unrighteous city. And he did it because that unrighteous city abused the family of Abraham. And so in his mind, he's going, oh, no, this is not good. There's, there's something about this Abraham that is good. There's something about this Abraham that's righteous. There's something in his life that very clearly belongs to the Lord and to his purposes. Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And he starts making his case to the God of Abraham. He says, look, I, I'm kind of innocent here. And I want you to notice something. God is actually quite gracious to a man who does not yet know the Lord in a way that we might think, well, maybe God should have just taken out this evil king right here and right now. I mean, after all, what business did he have taking Sarah anyway? But God holds us accountable for what we know. God God works in our lives according to the knowledge that we have. 
And so people who do not yet know the Lord very often get extreme grace for things that you as a believer are going to pay a much higher price for. You see, God deals, he chastens, again the writer of Hebrews says, he chastens those whom he loves. And if he does not chasten you, he does not love you. But he chastens primarily his children. He deals with unbelievers because he has to. He's trying to move them towards the cross of Christ. But he actually chastens his kids. In other words, his kids get a spanking. And you all can know this. If you have children and your children have brought other people's children to your home, you can whack your own kids, right? I'm not suggesting you should beat your children. But you can deal with your children because they know the house rules, right? They know exactly what's expected of them. But you cannot hold the neighbor children to your house rules because they do not know the house rules. The same is true with God. God expects his children to know his rules. And he is a little lighter on those things. That's why when you see people who don't know the Lord engaged in all manner of things, most of the time they're completely oblivious to God's requirement. They're like, I didn't even know it was a sin. You talk to someone who's living with their boyfriend or girlfriend or maybe has a party lifestyle who does not know the Lord and they look at you like you're nuts when you tell them, you know, you're really not supposed to be doing that. Because that's not what Pitbull told them. That's, you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. You know, it's like, oh, I heard it on the radio. It must be okay. <laughs> so we have to put this exactly where it belongs. Abraham knows what's expected of him. Abimelech does not know what's expected of him. And so he says, and she, even herself, she's my sister. And did she, even herself, say, he's my brother. In integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I've done this. In other words, I didn't know any better. God's not saying, well, it's, it's, it's okay for you to sin. God's not saying that at all. But he is acknowledging the fact that Abimelech is actually innocent of the understanding that there's a problem with this behavior. And when you run into people who don't know the Lord, you should not be shocked that sinners sin. Amen? If you're a believer in here, say amen. 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 Sinners sin. And if you're an unredeemed sinner, you generally do more sinning than a redeemed sinner because we're all sinners. Amen? Amen? The difference is sinners saved by grace know better, generally. And sinners without the grace of God, who's not experienced the love of God, really have no idea that this is even a big deal. It's like, well, I didn't kill anybody today. You know, I didn't rob any banks. I'm doing pretty good. You talk to someone who's lived a gang lifestyle. They just, they're just doing life. This is what they know. They they believe with all their heart it's actually essential if they want to live through another day very often. They haven't got a clue. And so here's Abraham sitting in the background. And God said to him in a dream, 
Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. Would you please underline that? God knows the integrity of even unbelievers' hearts. He knows why they do what they do. And I think sometimes God is actually more upset with us believers who think we're fooling everyone by messing with Scripture to kind of make our sin seem pseudo-palatable than he is with full-blown heathens. Because from a heathen perspective, this king's actually kind of sort of doing the right thing here. God knows it. And notice the grace of God on a wicked king's life. For also I withheld from you from sinning against me, and therefore I did not let you touch her. You didn't know any better. For you it was okay, but I even protected a heathen king from going too far. You don't think that God isn't good? I mean, here's the guy you would think, well, it's a heathen king, why don't you just kill him? Yeah, you kind of know where the story's going. I mean, look, I mean, Sarah is bearing the promised one. She's already pregnant with Isaac, by the way. You would think, God, well, I'm just going to kill him. But no, he has grace for the failures of even unbelievers. And now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And can you imagine God explaining that one? And this, by the way, is the first time the word prophet is used in this context. And so again, the law first mentioned, what is it? It's the speaking forth of what God has said. It's not speaking of future events. It's the speaking forth of the truth of what God has already said and commanded. That is the primary gift of prophecy. Things future is only a part. But he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not restore her now, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So here's where God uses this evil in the life of an unbelieving heathen king to speak into his life saying, look, I I want you to repent. I want you to change. You can't keep doing this. You need to stop right here, right now. My grace has limits. God is forever telling everyone, my grace actually has some limits. You can't just continue to sin with impunity and expect God to do nothing. And if necessary, if, if you were that one person who was so wicked that it is in the world's best interest for God to take you out, make no mistake, he'll take you out. Sometimes we forget the severity of God. God is at times very severe. At times, God pours out his justice and his wrath for the betterment of the rest of us. So God's not slacking off here on his holiness. He's just saying, look, Abimelech doesn't know any better. I'm going to give him an opportunity to repent, but I'm going to clearly tell him, you either do what I'm telling you to do or it's going to cost you. And that is really how God's grace works in our lives, in a very general sense, but it's fairly consistent, I believe, for most people. 
God doesn't immediately just start wailing on us. Amen? Anybody thankful for that? You know, all of a sudden you realize that you got some issue in your life. Aren't you glad that God doesn't like lightning bolt? It's like, well, you had a chance. No, God incrementally kind of turns up our understanding. And, and, and so when we see that thing the second time, we kind of know, well, this is, didn't go well last time. It's going to go less well the second time, and the third time, and the fourth time. And when you get to the tenth time and you begin to test God, you might want to be looking around to see if there's any buses coming. Amen? If you don't believe God is just and fair, He's just and He's fair, and He's not beyond taking us out if we continue to persist in evil. Only he knows when he's going to run to the end of his willingness to continue to move forward with you. That's why it's never a good thing to fall into the hands of a just God. A God who has the capacity to do anything he wants. And so Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men which were very much afraid... And Abimelech called to Abraham and said, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you've brought me and my kingdom a great sin? Now this is a real shame. Because here's a heathen king that apparently has a better understanding of the righteousness of God than God's own prophet Abraham. And there's a little warning for those of us in ministry here to remember who it is we represent. And there should not ever be a time in your life nor mine where the Lord would be better served going to a heathen king to get a representation of righteousness than to his own people. That is a shame of a magnitude that I cannot even express to you. And we see it, don't we? Why do you think it is so shameful when we see ministries, pastors, people in ministry who once were here in the things of the Lord who have fallen to here because they failed to yield to the work of the Holy Spirit in their life and they continued to persist in things that do not belong in the life of a believer. And where do they get shamed? By the heathen. By people who don't know the Lord. And they start, well, you know, those Christians... We owe God a debt that we cannot pay. And part of our payment to the Lord ought to be that we live our lives in a way that's pleasing to Him. You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. And then Abimelech said to Abraham, What you did, what did you have in view that you have done this thing? Well, Abraham, where were you going with this? And I want you to see this. This is like one of those areas where I think we need to pay very, very, very close attention. Because in this is a half lie and a half truth. And it equals a whole lie. It's not kind of, sort of, a holy lie. It's an unrighteous lie. Because the purpose now is going to be exposed. Can I tell you, God does not need your help. 
you do not need to defend God by telling stories. Nor do you need to defend yourself by telling stories. You can speak the truth and let God be your defense. And Abraham says, because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And so she became my wife. She's saying, look, this is all perfectly fine. It's well, it's legal. I'm telling you the whole story now. I gave you half the story previously. And it came to pass that when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, uh, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place, wherever we go. Say of me, he is my brother. It's not exactly, you know, what most women want in their husband, amen? Honey, I'm kind of afraid of everybody. Could you, like, lie for me so nobody gets on my case? And then Abimelech took the sheep, the oxen, the male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham, and he restored Sarah's wife to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. And then Sarah said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Or then to Sarah, he said. And indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you, before everybody. And thus she was rebuked. Man, when the heathens have the ability to rebuke the child of God because they are more righteous than we are, that is an absolute travesty. But you have a heathen king doing more rightly in the eyes of God than Abraham, the father of faith. What a shame. And so Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants, and then they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And so this second time around, there are two basic truths from this passage. In a remaining time, just a few things for you to glean from it. I want you to notice that Satan will stop at nothing to ruin your testimony. He will stop at nothing to ruin your testimony. He will help you repeat your past failures. He will bring stuff up in your life that you have struggled with. He is no gentleman. He does not play fair. And so if you've got issues in your life, you need to be on guard because the enemy absolutely will come after you in those areas where you have previously fallen. He will dredge back up the thoughts. He will dredge back up the feelings. He will dredge back up the memories. He will attempt to get you to repeat your failures. Make no mistake. He's not called the destroyer for nothing. He's not called the roaring lion for nothing. He is not called the father of all lies for nothing. 
because the way he works is by destruction and lies. A second thing, our capacity as sinful humankind, even redeemed sinful humankind, is almost limitless to be fairly, how should I say this politely, idiotic, foolish, dumb as hot rocks, stupid. We, we have a tremendous capacity to go, well, it won't get me this time. I know it got me last time, but you know, I'm okay this time. And so in the Bible, this story is going to be repeated again. We see it twice in the life of Abraham, and then we see exactly why I'm telling you these things tonight. Because if you live this way as a mom and a dad, as a believing set of parents, and you show your children this path, know this. Isaac's turn doing the exact same thing is coming. Do not teach your children how to sin. Walk in the ways of the Lord because Isaac's turn is coming. And those two truths are, are still true today. People have argued over why this passage is here and they came up with what's called the, the documentary source hypothesis that there were different scrolls. It was kind of like a retelling but I don't think that's remotely true because there's nothing in the text that indicates that this isn't just God saying Abraham is a knucklehead. Abel, Abraham is a fool. Abraham thinks that he's immune to, to the chastisement of the Lord. Abraham is a bumbling, lying, mismanager of the things of God at times. And that should both frighten us and encourage us at the same time. Because what it means is we do need to live our lives according to God's plans and purposes for us by his word. But he also works with our failures and our weaknesses. Because if God had ever had a case of any one of the major patriarchs to just say, you know, enough's enough, it would have been Abraham. Because he seems to kind of continually you know, have some issues with authority. Issues with, with God's righteousness. Issues with God's holiness. And so God's reasoning in this is pretty clear. Abraham and Isaac need to be spared. They need to be saved as messed up as they are. They have a central part in God's plan of redemption for mankind it is through this line and this line alone that Messiah is going to come. And so God's grace is extreme to them. But make no mistake, God's not happy with the flaws. He's not happy with the lying and the mismanagement. He does not want Abraham to live this way. And so we see Abraham actually suffer the consequences of this. And in Abraham's case, this whole process of telling a half a truth, God's basically saying, look, it's a whole lie. It's that Proverbs 16, 25 truth. There is a way that seems right unto man, but the end of it is death. 
And you could almost see Abraham and Sarah. Well, you know, it's kind of sort of worked when we were in Egypt. You know, we almost got away with it. I've sat down with people that for years have cheated on their taxes. And by that, let me tell you what I'm trying to say to you. They've claimed dependence that they don't have. They, they've announced to the IRS that they made X amount of money when more than half of it was cash. And here's their excuse. Well, you know, the government wastes our money. Spends it on things that are ungodly. So I was just keeping my money back. And yet Jesus hauls a fish out of the Sea of Galilee and pulls out of it two coins. says here, pay this because one of these is for me and one of these is for you. Jesus rendered unto Caesar those things which are Caesar and unto God those things which are God's. And so we don't get a chance to make up our own rules as we go. When God has spoken authoritatively, that is his opinion on the matter. We tell the whole truth. We live our lives in truth. And in this case, Abram's half-sister was more importantly his whole wife. Amen? It's the way we have to live our lives. Even if it's dangerous. Even if you have to suffer through some travesty. You see, at that point in time, in, in Chaldea, where Abraham came from, specifically in the Hurrian society, where he was in Haran, it was actually permissive and permittable for you to marry half-sisters. And so they still called them in that society a sister. So this is one of those areas where Christians today, they say this, well, it's legal. Can I tell you there's a whole lot of things that are legal that are not okay with God. And so be careful. We need to live our lives by God's parameters, not ones that we make up or borrow from the world. Maybe Abraham was trying to get his brother's status here, kind of come to the forefront. I I don't really know. Me personally, I just think he was just kind of a spineless toad. But that's just me. I guess I can ask him when I get there. (laughs) What were you thinking? You realize that looked pretty gutless, right? (laughs) What were you thinking? One of the things I want to kind of conclude on, just a thought. You see, Abraham was not supposed to be where he was. He had been told where he was to go. When he pitched his tent at Shechem, he did good. When he was in his tent and in front of his altar, he did good. But he had moved to Gerar. And the reason that city is important is this. Gerar at that time was the capital city of the Philistines. It was an important city. 
It was a major trading place. It was a city of wealth. And so now the real reason that Abraham compromised comes into view. He was trying to make a buck. He he was trying to profit off of the heathens. He was, as the Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians, unequally yoked. He, He was trying to have business enterprise with Abimelech. In other words, what's probably in view is, hey, if you marry my sister, we're kind of like brothers, and so you need to treat me well, and I'll have a few more camels and a little more gold and some more silver. In other words, he was willing to sell his integrity. He was willing to go where he should not have gone. God had already delivered him from this land. God had already sent him out of Gerar. God had already moved him away from this place. And so my question to you tonight, because they're in 1 Timothy 6, it's pretty clear that the love of money is actually the root of all kinds of evil. Not money, but the love of it. And not every evil thing is because of money, but there are a lot of things that are directly attached to prosperity, financial wealth and gain. Do you have a Gerar in your life? Maybe for some of you that's a bar. Maybe for some of you that's a relationship. For some of you, maybe it is just like Abraham. Maybe you have a tough time telling the truth and you're prone towards telling a lie. Perhaps it's cheating or deception or drugs or anger. Maybe it's bitterness or unforgiveness. Maybe it's hate. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's your classmates.com account where you're keeping tabs with your old flame. Maybe it's your Facebook profile Is there a Gerar in your life where you are prone to compromise, to think things you shouldn't think as a child of God, to be where you shouldn't be as a child of God? In Abraham's case, he liked money. He liked the good life. And so he went back to Gerar, a place he shouldn't have been. These were ungodly Philistines. The intermixing of the Jewish people with them uh, would result in Ham's son. They would be a constant thorn in the flesh of the Jewish people. Is there a Gerar in your life? You see, they'd already been through this problem once. But they went back to the thing they'd already been delivered from. Brothers and sisters, don't go back where God has already delivered you. Don't return, as the Apostle Paul said, back to your own vomit. Back to the things of the world. It's always 
always worse the second time. The price is higher. It will take longer. There's a reason we're to put off the old man. There's a reason we're supposed to have all things become new. Just exactly as 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. Because God wants to pour out His grace on us. And fortunately for us in this picture, He does. We can see the grace of God. But God had to once again deliver Abraham and Sarah. And you often, I I think in the light of these things this way. How much better would their lives have been had they not gone back to Gerar? How much more fruitful would they have been for the Lord and for his kingdom had they not returned to a place they'd already been delivered from? How many times did they have to come up with a new way to justify the sinful behavior that they had already been delivered from? What excuse would they have to offer God to try and make it right somehow other than just simply saying, God, I'm so sorry I've sinned again. So don't do it. Don't return. Don't go back. Go for, no matter how slowly you're inching forward, put off the old, put on the new, and let God do that work in your life where all things are becoming new. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. It is life to us. And we are so delighted, God, to be your kids. Help us to not return to those places that we could call our own Gerar. Lord, those areas of life where where you told us not to go, told us not to move in. Lord, let us always look to those moments where you delivered us and pile up the Ebenezer stones on the banks of the Jordan. See, it is here that our God delivered and let it be a remembrance to your power, God. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace, your mercy in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen.